0: So that brings us to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he ruled for 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother was Hamatol, the daughter of Jeremiah from Limnah, and he did evil in the sight of Yahweh as Jehoiakim had done. What follows is a record of what happened to Jerusalem and Judah because of Yahweh's anger. He finally threw them out of his presence and Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came against Jerusalem with his whole army and set up camp outside of it. He built siege ramps all around it, and he arrived on the tenth day of the ninth month in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign. And the city remained under siege until Zedekiah's eleventh year. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city was so severe, the residents had no food. The enemy broke through the city walls, and all the soldiers tried to escape, and they left the city during the night. They went through the gate between the two walls that is near the king's garden. The Babylonians were, were all around the city. Then they headed for Jerusalem, sorry, Jordan Valley, but Babylon army chased after the king. They caught up with him in the plains of Jericho, and his entire army deserted him. They captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon of Riblah, where he passed sentence on him. Zedekiah's sons were executed while Zedekiah was forced to watch, and the king of Babylon then had Zedekiah's eyes put out and bound him in bronze chains and carried him off to Babylon. This third wave is 586 B.C. In 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes down a third time. This time, he completely puts Jerusalem under siege. He invades. He captures it. Zedekiah and his family runs off, and then he captures them. He executes the sons right there in front of Zedekiah, and then he gouges out his eyes. And he takes them and binds them. Now, this is significant. He binds them in bronze chains. He did not have to mention that they were bronze. But bronze is symbolic of judgment. And so what God is saying is, this is the judgment of God. This is happening because of God's judgment. So now Judah has been completely sacked. And everything belongs to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse eight, on the 17th day of the fifth month in the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the royal guard who served the king of Babylon arrived in Jerusalem. He burned down Yahweh's temple, the royal palace, and all the houses in Jerusalem, including every large house. The whole Babylonian army that came with the captain of the royal guard tore down the walls that surrounded Jerusalem. Nebazardan, the captain of the royal guard, deported the rest of the people who were left in the city, those who had deserted to the king of Babylon, and the rest of the craftsmen. But he left behind some of the poor the land and gave them fields and vineyards. He then finally devastates everything that's left in Jerusalem. Now remember, Jerusalem would have been mostly royal people, mostly wealthy people. So the poor people are mostly in the other cities. So he takes out the rest of the people in Jerusalem. And not only that, he completely destroys the temple. And he does not leave one stone standing. He throws every single stone from the temple and every stone from the wall around the temple and the portico completely off the hill of Mount Zion or also known as Mount Moriah and throws it down the valleys. And you can see those stones this day. Those stones are over five tons and they are taller than you are. And they are still there because nobody wants to pay the money to have them removed. And their archaeological discovery and that kind of stuff. So he tears down all these stones and throws them off. And it's an incredible feat that men who have no heavy machinery are able to take these stones that are 5, 10, and 15 tons in weight and push them off the side of a hill down into the valley. Stone after stone after stone. And the great glory of Solomon because it really wasn't built for Yahweh's glory, is now completely destroyed and gone. Now the question that all of Israel has been, Judah has been saying is God can never attack this. God, The Babylonians would never come and attack this land. God is here. Nothing bad will ever happen to the temple of God. God is here. Now Jeremiah at this time has been prophesying that the Babylonians are coming, repent. The Babylonians are coming and repent. Halfway through the book of Deuteronomy, Israel hit the point of no return that we learned about with um, Josiah. At that point, Jeremiah says, there's nothing you can do, the Babylonians are coming. But then Jeremiah actually commands them to not resist the Babylonians. He says, if you resist the Babylonians, then you're going against the will of God and you're resisting Yahweh. Not only that, the Babylonians will just take you into exile. If you resist them, you'll make them mad and they'll kill you. So better to stay alive and not oppose the will of God and just give in to the exile, because there's nothing you can do to stop it. Now, many, many people in Judah labeled Jeremiah a traitor. That would be like us standing up today and saying, don't resist the terrorists and don't resist China and Russia. We're Just give in and let them take over America. You would be so unpatriotic in America. Now, and the people who do say that don't like them. And the, 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 the NRA and the, all of the you can take my gun from my hands when you pry it from my cold, dead fingers would not be happy with you. That would be the equivalent of what Jeremiah has done. He is literally telling them, throw your patriotism out the window. Throw your allegiance to Judah out the window. God says the Babylonians are coming. Don't resist. To be patriotic is to be anti-God. That, that would be a hard thing. That would be a hard thing, okay? And we are not even the chosen people of God. They were the chosen people of God with a giant shekinah glory of God burning on top of the temple. Their response to Jeremiah was to try to kill him with multiple assassination attempts and to say, you're wrong because look at that pillar of fire that's on top of the temple. This is God's land. He chose us. Nothing bad can happen when God is here. And they're right. That's where Ezekiel's vision kicks in. Because Ezekiel has a vision of God's glory leaving the temple, which means God is no longer there, which means now they can be destroyed. And so that's the thing that they did not anticipate. They never could imagine a day that God would not be with them because God has been with them since 1446 B.C., and it's now 586. It's a long time to get very comfortable with the fact that God would never leave us. No matter how many times the prophets said, God's about ready to leave you. Because all they could look at is the picture on the wall has always been there. Even though there's horrible sins happening in the house. Look at the picture of us as a family, all smiling and happy. That's who we are. Meanwhile, the dad is abusive and alcoholic and yelling and screaming and horrible things are happening in the house. But they just keep pointing to the picture on the wall of why we're okay, why we're okay. And that's exactly what they're doing. But the temple, the temple, the temple. And meanwhile, the prophets are like, but the child sacrifices and the idolatry and the sins and the murders and the injustices. And they're like, but the temple, the temple, the temple. And God says, I'll answer that. And he leaves. And the Babylonians come as their judgment. So he destroys the temple because all it is is a building. I remember I told you the Ark of the Covenant has not been mentioned. It has been briefly mentioned a couple times But most likely, Nebuchadnezzar is the one who's taken it. And from what we know about ancient worlds, then most likely he melted it down. Because one, there's no reason for the Ark of the Covenant to exist anymore if we are the Ark of the Covenant. And two, for everybody else in the world, it's just a gold-plated box. And Nebuchadnezzar probably most likely would never, ever, ever keep the gold box around when there's tons of gold there that he would like to use. And not only that, if Yahweh really meant for us to have the Ark of the Covenant, then it would have been found by now. And not only that, theologically speaking, I really truly believe that it's impossible to have a temple or the Ark of the Covenant because Christ is the Ark of the Covenant and the temple who dwells in us. But I've already mentioned that when we talked about the building of the temple, but I'm going to go into a lot more detail and depth when we get to the book of Ezekiel and of the other prophets. The prophets will sprinkle ideas here, but Ezekiel really drives it home. And then when we get to the Gospels, it will really be driven home. But whatever reason, here's what's interesting. It doesn't really matter whether the Ark of the Covenant still exists today or not. What's really interesting is that God never mentions the Ark of the Covenant, which means in God's eyes, it's not important anymore. Because you know Paper is extremely expensive and precious in the ancient world. And if God is going to give you five chapters of how he builds, how to build a tabernacle and then waste, in quotes, five more chapters tell you the exact same thing about the tabernacle, that means he's not afraid to waste paper when things are really important to him. And yet, there's not even one sentence about the Ark of the Covenant here and nowhere else. So that means by this time, the Ark of the Covenant is not important to Yahweh. It, is, it has served its purpose, and he's ready to move Israel on to something new. And that's what the prophets are going to start talking about, the coming of the Messiah. The coming of the Messiah. Verse 13. The Babylonians broke down the two bronze pillars of Yahweh's temple, as well as the movable stands in the big bronze basin called the sea. They took the bronze of the Babylon, and they took the pots and the shovels and the trimming shears, pans, and all the bronze utensils used by the priests. The captain of the royal guard took the gold and silver censers and basins. The bronze of the items that King Solomon made for Yahweh's temple, including the two pillars, the big bronze basin called the sea, the twelve bronze bowls under the sea, and the movable stands was too heavy to be weighed. And each of the pillars was about 27 feet high, and the bronze top of one pillar was about four and a half feet high, and had bronze lace latticework and pomegranate shaped ornaments all around it. And the second pillar and his latticework was like it. Now, what I find interesting is how much time God is actually spending on the destruction of Solomon's additions to the temple. He could just say the temple was destroyed. Remember, he just said the tabernacle was replaced with the temple and moved on. But he's really emphasizing not the destruction of the Holy of Holies, not the destruction of the Ark of the Covenant, not the destruction of the holy place, not the destruction of all the things that God had commanded to be in the tabernacle and then later the temple. He's talking about all the details that Solomon had added to the temple. Almost like this is his final word of saying, I didn't care about any of that. And to emphasize that, I'm really. this is kind of the, I told you so. Well, see? Look at all that fancy artwork. Didn't mount anything. Look at all those details. See, it's destroyed. That's what I'm focusing on. I told you so. Now, probably not with that attitude, but the same idea. The captain of the road guard took Sariah, the chief priest of Zephaniah, the priest who was second in ring, and the three doorkeepers from the city. And he took a eunuch who had, was in charge of the soldiers, 5 Of the king's advisors who were discovered in the city, an official army secretary who drafted citizens for the military service, and 60 citizens from the people of the land who were discovered in the city. Nebu Zoradan, captain of the royal guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Ribla. The king of Babylon ordered them to be executed at Reblon in the territory of Hamath. So Judah was deported from its land. Now they're dying. Because Jeremiah told them not to resist. If you resist, you'll make the Babylonians angry and they'll kill you. If you don't resist, you'll go into exile and God will take care of you. They resisted, they're dying. Chapter 25, verse 22. Now King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon appointed Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, son of Saphon, as governor of the people whom allowed to remain in the land of Judah. So there's not a king anymore. He's now the governor. All the officers of the Judea army and their troops heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah to govern. So they came to Gedaliah Mizpah. And the officers who came were Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, Jonathan, son of Kareah, Sarai, son of Tanamoth, and Nephepite, and Jaz- Jazanitha, son of Mekahekethite. <laughs> Gedaliah took an oath so as to give them and their troops some assurance of safety. He said, you don't need to be afraid to submit to the Babylonian officials. Settle down in the land and submit to the king of Babylon. Then things will go well for you. Now, in the book of Jeremiah, we're told that Gedaliah and Jeremiah were really good friends. And Jeremiah has been prophesying Submit to the Babylonians, and it will go well for you. This is the will of Yahweh, and he will take care of you in the land. Gedaliah is really good friends with Jeremiah, and he is echoing the words of Jeremiah because he is faithful to Yahweh, and he is faithful to the prophet. And now he's governor, and he has a political clout to say that. But a lot of people didn't like that. So, but in the seventh month, Ishmael, son of Nathayan, son of Elishma, who was a member of the royal family, came with ten of his men and murdered Gedaliah because of his pro-Babylonian stance, which isn't really a pro-Babylonian stance. It's a pro-obedience to the Yahweh and the command and the prophecies of God stance. But that's so unpatriotic. As well as the Judeans and the Babylonians were mispot. Then all the people from the youngest to the oldest, as well as the army of fish officers, left from Egypt because they were afraid of what the Babylonians might do. So one of the final notes that the book of Kings ends on is Israel going back to the land of Egypt. The whole story of Israel as a nation begins an exodus when he freed them from Egypt. And through their exodus, he brought them out of Egypt, out of their bondage and slavery to Egypt, and he brought them into a promised land and said, I am the God who's over all creation, unlike any other God. I am the God that saved you when no other God cared about you. I am the God that brought you into the promised land, and I am the God that dwells with you. Now just lovingly, Obey me. And just as earlier it said that they had been sinning against God from the day that he brought them out of Egypt to now, they decide that they begin, God began their history as a nation with them leaving Egypt out of of their exile, going to the promised land, and God says never, ever go back to Egypt for any reason. It's the equivalent of saying never ever reject Christ and go back to your life of pre-Christ ever again. And now the story of Israel as a nation ends with them returning to Egypt for security and safety. They have killed the man who is obeying the word of God and they have gone back to Egypt. And this is Israel's end as a nation. They are not a nation anymore. They will go into exile for 70 years. And when they come back, they will not be a nation. They will have no king. They will only be dwelling in this tiny little territory of Judah. They will be a people group that are controlled by the Persians. They will be controlled by the Greeks. They will be controlled by the Romans. Under the Hasimonians, they will regain their political independence for the first time in 500 years. And then through political compromises, they will give up their independence within one generation. And by the time you enter into Jesus, they are still not really a nation. And they're still not really the people of God. Because as we get to the prophets, we're not going to deal with that tonight, but when we get to the prophets, the question is, they're in exile now, but what is the end of exile? That's the question the prophets are going to ask. What is truly the end of exile? So they are no longer the nation of Israel or Judah again. Although the restoration covenant of chapter 30 of Deuteronomy promises that God will restore them one day. But that's the question the prophets are asking. What is the end of exile and what is the restoration? You're just going to have to hold on to that. So this is the incredibly negative note. They're in exile. And those who are not in exile have fled to Egypt. The whole, it's almost like the whole salvific history of God has been undone. Now it hasn't been undone on an individual level. Many, many, many incredible men and women of God have come into the kingdom of God and will be in the kingdom of God when it's brought to earth. But on a, the people of God, as his chosen people, As a nation and a land, it almost feels like it's been all undone. Chapter 25, verse 27. In the 37th year of the exile, King Jehoiachin of Judah, on the 27th day of the 12th month, King evil Mordach of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, pardoned King Jehoiachin of Judah and released him from prison. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a more prestigious position then the other kings were with him in Babylon. Jehoiachin took off his prison clothes and ate daily in the king's presence for the rest of his life. He was given daily provisions by the king for the rest of his life until he had died. Now that's the note that the book ends on. Now there is this overwhelmingly dark shadow of exile that the the book ends on. And you can't really... No matter how much icing you put on the cake, you can't undo the incredible rottenness of how the book ends on. But it does end with one tiny little glimmer of hope. Jehoiachin is one of the last of the Davidic line. And God made a promise to David that his descendants would always live and would reign forever. And for the entire royal line to be wiped out, would be a failing of God's prophecy. And so we are now, this is the end of the Deuteronomic history. We're, the, we're done with the grand history of Israel. We have a couple historical books left, but they're very minor things compared to what we've done. The meat of Israel's history is over with. The heart of everything is over with. And the note that it ends on is, you're in exile. And God is no longer with you. And right now it seems like the promise of the Abrahamic covenant has failed. They're not in the land and they're not a great nation. It seems like the promises of the Davidic covenant have failed because there's only one guy left and he's in like prison in Babylon. It seems that maybe even this beyond hope that the restoration covenant could be even enacted when you have so few scraps left to work with. In fact, when we get to the prophets, God is going to talk about how he's cut the tree of Israel completely down to the ground, and all that is left is a root. But it ends on this note, the, final, the, the last royal line of David. His clothes of prison have been removed. And he's put at the t- king's table, and he's treated better than any of the other kings that Nebuchadnezzar has captured. And we know from historical records that this king actually did stuff like this. And so now he's sitting at the table. And this is where narrative history ends for Israel. The meat of it. That there's one little glimmer of hope that the Davidic covenant is not completely wiped out. Which also brings you to Isaiah, where he says a shoot will rise up out of the stump of Jesse. Now, if you cut down trees in America, shoots don't regrow and grow new trees. But if you cut an olive tree down, the olive tree is an eternal tree. It's the only tree that lives forever. And an olive tree lasts for about 2,000 years on normal lifespan. And when the olive tree begins to die, it doesn't actually die. The tree begins to die, but the root system grows up a new trunk And a new tree, as the old root that was above ground, dies. So an olive tree is literally just a root that has come above ground and grown a tree. And when one root begins to die, a new root comes up out of it and grows up again. And so not only is it an eternal tree that never dies, it's also a tree that self-resurrects. And that's the tree that Isaiah is talking about when he says a shoot will rise up out of the stump. And it's only done through resurrection. And so these are the hints that are being laid. It is incredibly negative. It's incredibly depressing because every book in the First Testament ends on a negative note, (laughs) narrative-wise. But there's one little glimmer of hope that that olive tree that is Israel, because that's the official national symbol of Israel, is going to come back one day. And it's seen in Jehoiachin, who doesn't deserve it, but he's restored to the banquet table. But not only that, Christ is going to come along and he's going to tell parables about the kingdom of God as a banquet table. And so this is the final hope that God is leaving them on. You have just reaped the full force of the Mosaic Covenant. The, full, the Mosaic Covenant demands absolute obedience to have life in the land. But Moses told them very clearly in Deuteronomy, you can't obey the law. Nobody can. Your only hope is that your hearts are circumcised one day. But until that happens, the law will kill you. And you will go into exile. But then he finishes Deuteronomy out with saying, but God promises one day he will bring you back from your exile into a land that is fully restored. He will regenerate or circumcise your heart." so that you actually can obey. And then he will give you the ability to prosper in your obedience. And then he will destroy all your enemies. And this last paragraph is that little light in the darkness that says the restoration covenant is still there. The Mosaic covenant brings death and kills you. But the restoration covenant brings hope that God will bring you through the dark tunnel And he will bring you back in the light through resurrection and restoration. The question is, when is that going to happen for Israel? And that's what we're going to dive into when we get into the prophets. Does it make sense? No matter how depressing and how hopeless and how much the wrath of God is being poured out on you in a scary, freaky, life-ending kind of a way, God never, ever, ever lets the light go out completely on the hope of us being his chosen people. He will always restore the remnant and the faithful. And that's why one of the first books we're going to deal with after the prophets is the book of Daniel. Because Daniel is a man who's been punished by God, corporately speaking, in exile, and yet God is preserving these men because he's showing that this is what I'm going to do for all the people. I'm punishing the nation, but I will always restore the remnant. So the conclusion is this. Yahweh has clearly established that he is the only true sovereign God over all creation. In the garden, he made it clear by the fact that he created everything by himself and ordered everything that he is absolutely sovereign over everything. Then by making Adam and Eve king and queen, priestesses of his temple, he gave them the right to be the image of God representing his sovereignty. And he laid out before them that if you obey me and serve me and live in a loving relationship with me, then I will make you my vice regents over all creation. But they failed. They decided to take autonomy instead, and they sinned. And God clearly shows that he has the right to judge them over and over and over again because of that. But he also showed that despite that, his ultimate desire is to be in the garden with his vice-regents in a perfect relationship with them, a good relationship. And so that's why he chooses Israel. After disinheriting the nations, He chooses Israel to be his people and starts lifting them up to be the new image of God. And so the book of Judges shows how they fail to be the image of God. Samuel, there's a little bit of redemption when God makes the Davidic covenant with David. But God makes it very clear in Samuel that the only way you could ever be successful is if you acknowledge that you are the vice-regent of Yahweh and not the absolute power over his creation. And kings miserably failed to get that point. The kings constantly elevated themselves above Yahweh in their minds. And they acted as if they were absolute king, like all the other nations. And therefore, God then rejected them as kings. And they go into exile, just like all the other nations. Remember, God said, you want a king like all the other nations? I'll give you a king like all the other nations. He will become arrogant and oppress you just like all the other kings of the other nations. But now kings has the final word when God says, now you're going to exile just like all the kings of the other nations. And this is the final conclusion of God's story. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You need to understand something that you cannot understand the power of Romans unless you see the narrative history of the First Testament. For all sin sin and falling short of the glory of God. That's such an abstract concept. And, and, and in America, that means something different to everybody. For some people, it means that we're all sinners and we're completely without any hope of doing anything good. Some people, that just means, oh, yeah, I sin. I lie and cheat every once in a while. But other than that, I'm a good person. For other people, it just means I'm just not enlightened enough yet. Or oh, I just haven 't made enough sacrifices to the gods yet that is such an abstract concept. if all you have is the epistles, you can argue all day long in theology of what that means, and people do. There is a plethora of commentaries written on the epistles, and very few of them actually agree with each other when you sp- but when you read the epistles in the light of the narrative history of Israel. And the way that God dealt with them relationally in his character, then for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, has a much deeper punch to it, has a much concrete reality to it. That Paul is writing with this stuff in mind. He's saying, Look at all the years that you've been around. That's why he starts the book and says, You Jews are without excuse, and you Gentiles are without excuse. And he's, he's, he's re- taking them back to their history. And this is why we need these narrative books. Because it's only in the narrative books that we learn who God is. God does not reveal his character in the Second Testament. He mentions words like, I'm loving, I'm faithful, I'm compassionate, I'm just. But we don't see that in the Second Testament. We see it here in all of its tensions it's it's gray areas it's mysteries it's the things that frustrate you the things that you're like but god and then and, and, hallelujah god and it's all here we're told that we're sinners in the second testament but we don't actually see stories of sinning like we do here this is the flesh the concrete story of god and humanity interacting together throughout history that makes the abstract epistles more real. And the only way you can interpret the abstract epistles is by going back to the narrative of God and humanity. And then there is no debate on what God means for all have sin, because it's an entire world in exile. And this is what Kings is trying to develop. It is depressing, it is very hopeless. <laughs> It's very foreign to us in the way that we are, but in the same way, there's a lot of similarities. But where it's really powerful is that you cannot really truly appreciate your need for Jesus until you appreciate how horribly lost and sinful you are. And this is why Paul theologically develops all have sin in the first three chapters of Romans unpacking all the narrative before he goes into chapter 4 and talks about the great salvation of Jesus Christ. Well, the end of chapter 3, going to chapter 4. And this is why Christ says, those who have forgiven of much, love much. Sometimes we need to wallow in the filth and the disgustingness of our historical past of sin. Not to feel guilty, not to feel shame, God has come to free us from guilt and to free us from shame, but to remind us of who we really truly are without Christ so that we can cling to him and experience the joy and the peace and the hope that he wants to offer us, the freedom and the liberation from our past. And if we do not remember this, even in its uncomfortableness, then we will not truly cling to Christ like we're supposed to. And that's why Deuteronomy says... The whole key to the Christian faith is remembrance. And the whole book of Deuteronomy is God saying, remember your parents and how much they failed and sinned and died? And remember how faithful God was in that despite that? He was faithful to judge you and to deliver you. Only when you remember the sin and how it brought judgment and when God was faithful to you when you didn't deserve it and brought you salvation Will you really truly live the awesome Christian life that God has allowed you to have in Christ? This is why Jesus said, Do this in remembrance of me and do it often. And he didn't just mean the cross and the Lord's Supper, he meant the whole history of who Jesus and Yahweh are in the world. This is what Kings is contributing.